One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases and is the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. We're in part four of our discussion about longevity and health span. And, uh, you know, many, many studies have been done to identify the variables that we can tweak to improve healthy aging. And several different researchers are quick to point out that these variables are not guarantees, but that they can combine together to stack the odds in our favor, right? They also point out that two people of, of similar age with similar health profiles may have gotten to that point in their lives through different combinations of these variables. So in other words, there's not just one path to healthy aging. And that's actually really good news, right? Um, I mentioned in another episode that thinking that you can you know, like pop a magic supplement and increase your longevity and health span without adopting better lifestyle strategies that, that if that's your approach, then, you know, I hate to say it to you, you're, you're kind of fooling yourself, right? The best anti-aging supplement on the planet won't help much if you're eating a standard American diet. And if you're constantly inflamed, if you don't have good gut health, a good microbiome, if you don't sleep well, if you don't exercise or uh, don't know how to say no to people who are demanding your time, your energy, and your focus. In other words, when it comes to longevity and health span, there are priorities. And, and they're priorities that have to be taken in place, or not taken in place, they must be put in place first before you can expect any supplement to help. So in the last episode, we talked about some of the molecules of longevity. We, we talked about telomeres, we talked about sirtuins. And I have a short list of supplements that can help support that. But, you know, what I want to do is to shift from that micro picture of molecules to the macro picture of the entire person, right? Playing off that phrase that one of the researchers says, like we have to go from molecules to man. <clears throat> Pardon me. No. So when you look at the studies done on long-lived populations, especially those who, who also tend to have fewer health issues, than we do. We see some patterns of behavior and we see some patterns of metabolic states. Some of the more obvious metabolic states that are metabolic states that are more favorable to good health and longevity would be obvious things. Again, like control of your blood sugar and insulin. Specifically, you want your morning fasting insulin to be single digits. It, it really needs to be below 10. You don't want problems with your adrenal function and cortisol levels or the induction of what we call stress chemistry. Hormone balance and control is critical. And as I just mentioned, you know, gut health and your microbiome. As in general, just maintaining a healthy body mass, right? You, you need a certain amount of muscle and you need to minimize your body fat because when we lose muscle and gain fat, it's not metabolically healthy, right? And these are some, again, some of the more obvious metabolic states that are more favorable. So what about that bigger picture? Um, we're going to go through a list of things in, in this episode and, and probably it'll, it's probably going to extend over to the next one, but then we'll, we'll end our discussion on longevity and health span there. But 
one of the big things is eating in moderation. <laughs> Very easy to say, not always easy to follow through and to execute. But one of the key factors in longevity and health span is limiting calorie intake, particularly by not overindulging. And this is something that can be hard to do when, when much of what we eat in North America has hidden calories, um, but not all people in North America overeat, right? In fact, many of the clients that I work with actually have the opposite problem. They're chronically undereating and they're hypocaloric. And this presents another problem where we see lower metabolism. We do see the induction of chronic stress chemistry because of the hypocaloric state and it, and it shifts metabolism into a conversation, uh, conservation, not conversation, conservation mode. Uh, some people might call it starvation mode, but that sounds a little bit extreme to me. But both of these issues pivot around the concept that nutrient and energy balance is critical for health and well-being. In fact, we have two main systems that sense nutrients and energy levels, and they make adjustments to your metabolic state. Um, and in fact, these two things that we're going to be talking about today are often included with the sirtuin system that we talked about in the last episode as major drivers of health and longevity. And those two things are things that you may have heard about recently. They are mTOR, M-T-O-R, and A-M-P-K. And mTOR stands for uh, mammalian target of rampamycin, and A-M-P-K stands for adenosine monophosphate uh, protein kinase, A-M-P-K. Um, most of the information that you see on the internet and in social media talks about one or the other, but these two metabolic factors work together to control cell growth and development, uh, DNA activation, with, which leads cells to make different proteins. Um, they're involved in mitochondrial biogenesis. They're involved in autophagy. They're involved in cell death signals. And studies tell us that dysregulation of these two chemical pathways is involved in the aging and the senescence process. Now, I know it probably sounds like we're diving right back into the molecules part of molecules to man, and I guess I am to a certain extent, but I'm doing this for two reasons. First is that sirtuins, mTOR, and AMPK are the three key molecular aspects of longevity. We just haven't had a chance to talk about mTOR and AMPK yet, so we're going to do that. Um, the second reason is that once we fold mTOR and AMPK into the conversation, building a basic understanding, because they can get very complicated very quickly, then we can talk more about the macro picture of how our choices in life affect these things. And that's ultimately where we want to go, right? We want to go to the man part of molecules to man. So mTOR is a, a nutrient and energy sensing system that's involved in overall and growth, overall growth and development in our younger years, you know, when we're getting taller and larger. And it's involved in control of aging in later years once growth and development starts to slow. And mTOR is activated by many different things, but it's activated uh, specifically by several different amino acids. So protein intake is important. Amino acids, of course, are, are the building blocks of protein. More specifically, uh, we see amino acids like leucine, arginine, and, and a form of methionine called S-adenosylmethionine, also called SAMe, um, being specifically pointed out in the literature as activators of mTOR. But let's just say protein and amino acids in general. 
But mTOR is also activated by growth factors like insulin or IGF-1, which is the, the downstream metabolite of growth hormone that actually allows growth hormone to have an impact on, on growth and development. And more than these things, um, exercise, particularly resistance training, increases mTOR activation, especially when nutrients, protein specifically, is abundant. And that should make sense because mTOR is essentially the cell signal that says, let's adapt to stressors, let's grow, let's get bigger, let's get stronger, let's make more mitochondria so that we can make more energy to feed more muscle to do more things. And that's a good thing. And, and to aid this growth process, mTOR not just drives the cell growth signaling, it also decreases this thing called autophagy. Now, I'm pretty sure you've heard of autophagy, but let's just assume for the moment someone listening has not. Autophagy basically is a recycling program that allows your cells to break down and reuse its own internal components, much of which are proteins. Um, and then that includes just regular proteins, damaged proteins, defective proteins. And autophagy is a process of cleaning up and recycling, right? And, and that's a desirable thing because we make things, use things, they become damaged over time. We need to either break down and get rid of things that are junked up or we need to break them down and recycle them, whatever the usable parts might be. We call that autophagy. And mTOR uh, decreases that. mTOR activation causes cells to grow, causes our cells and our bodies to make more proteins, et cetera, but it also decreases autophagy. And, and it's important to remember that all aspects of human metabolism are a reflection of balance, balance between opposing forces. In order to grow or to be in what's called an anabolic state that's building up, you have to minimize all things that are catabolic, which is breaking down. So we have anabolic and we have catabolic. So we're always breaking down and building up at the same time. And whichever direction you're going in, either net increase or net decrease, is determined by the net balance between these two. If you emphasize things that are catabolic, yet you still have some anabolic drive, you're still going to break things down because the relative balance says that's what, what's going to happen. On the, on the other hand, if you minimize your catabolic variables and enhance or optimize your anabolic variables, you're going to grow. And this is where AMPK comes in. AMPK inhibits mTOR as part of this counterbalancing system that prevents growth signals from getting out of hand. In, and on that note, let me point out that some studies focus on unregulated mTOR activation as being pro-cancer. So some drug companies are, are trying to find these mTOR inhibitors um, that are hopefully going to perform well as cancer therapies, but so far not so good. They haven't been all that successful. But there is this link in the literature to mTOR activation and cancer, but understand that this is in the extreme when we have no control of the mTOR system. Remember, these systems don't live in isolation. It's all about balance. It's about systems integration. And for everything that says, hey, your body is going to do this, we have something that controls that so that we have control over these things. One mistake people can make in this regard is, is connecting dots that don't really need to be connected. For example, if we start with the premise that higher protein diets lead to more mTOR activity, 
and then consider that high mTOR might cause cancer, some people will connect those dots and conclude incorrectly that high protein diets cause cancer. It's kind of like A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. We can't conclude that. That would be a wrong conclusion to simply say high protein diets cause cancer. If that were true, we would see substantially higher rates of cancer among athletes or the general population who, who lift weights, they exercise and they eat more protein, and we don't see that. In fact, we see the opposite. People who lift and eat adequate protein have lower rates of cancer than those people who do not. So mTOR builds up by driving protein replication, mitochondrial biosynthesis, that's how we make energy, and by inhibiting this autophagy process, right? It, it doesn't help us to build up if we're breaking down at exactly the same rate. And AMP, AMPK, sorry, AMPK helps to break down and recycle by increasing autophagy, and it does so by inhibiting mTOR. They work in conjunction with each other. Now, AMPK is, is an energy sensor. One of the main drivers of AMPK activation is where cellular energy levels are low. And as a result, when energy levels are low at the cellular level, AMPK increases energy-producing systems and limits energy-consuming processes like making proteins or growing cells or adding more body fat. In a nutshell, AMPK makes you better able to release and, and use stored energy from both glycogen or glucose and your body fat. And that's a good thing. One of the problems that you run into when you read about or listen to podcasts about all this stuff is that when you focus on one and not the other, when you zero in on the details and you don't see the big picture in the whole system, you can easily get a very skewed view of what's important. Right? It's, it's easy to conclude, for example, that since autophagy is good, we want to be able to clean out metabolic junk and break down faulty proteins. So since autophagy is good and since AMPK increases autophagy and mTOR inhibits it, it's easy to conclude incorrectly that we always want to increase AMP activation and we don't want mTOR. But that's a, it's a non-functional reductionist, very monolithic view of a complicated system where both functions are necessary for health and longevity. Remember, it's all about balance and control. A lot of people simply, you know, you've heard this whole, this saying, like, I, I know enough to be dangerous. And this is one of those areas that, that I think that that is, is aptly true. Here's another example. Uh, since autophagy is good and protein increases mTOR, which inhibits autophagy, some people will look at that and immediately reduce their protein intake because they think if I eat too much protein, I'm not going to have autophagy. And at the same time, they learn that intermittent fasting and calorie restriction increases AMPK, which increases autophagy. So they pair their low protein intake with low calorie diets and, and they fast intermittently, uh, sometimes every day, sometimes with extended fasts of two or three days every week, perhaps a seven, like a full seven day fast every quarter or every month. And, and so when, when we think in terms of all or none, Rather than the more accurate nuance of balance, 
when we assign labels like this is good or this is bad to things that are not inherently either, then we make mistakes. Neither mTOR nor AMPK by themselves are inherently good or bad. Context and and balance and nuance make all the difference in the world. And you can never completely eradicate either mTOR or AMPK. They're always both active. In reality, our pursuit of health span within our lifespan, perhaps we can adopt strategies that cycle priorities. Where, for example, we go through periods of time where we reduce calories intentionally and do some sort of fasting maybe to increase autophagy, but not at the expense of building and repairing cell structures and maintaining muscle tissue. We need both, but we need balance. Since together, mTOR and AMPK are related to protein intake and energy balance, let me put it in these terms for context. We need to eat enough protein and consume enough calories. But we don't want to eat too much protein and too many calories or too little of either, either. <laughs> if you're going to make a mistake, I would much rather see you eat more protein than you need rather than less than what you need. But when it comes to calories, it's the opposite. It seems that a slight calorie deficit is beneficial where a calorie surplus is not, unless. You need extra calories and extra protein to, for example, build muscle. Like I said, context is key. Let's say that you realize that you are under-muscled because you've keyed into this concept of muscle as medicine. Muscle enhances longevity, enhances health span, and it enhances quality of life. Having adequate muscle mass is a tool that you can use to be healthier and live longer and have a more fulfilling life because that's what it is. It's a tool, right? So you decide I'm under muscled. I'm going to start resistance training. But if you don't eat enough protein and enough calories to drive mTOR and limit AMPK, you will at best not make the gains that you seek. And at worst, you may actually lose muscle tissue because you're tipping the scales into the catabolic state rather than the anabolic state. And muscle mass is precious. An extreme example of this is the anorexic person who doesn't eat hardly at all and exercises six hours a day. They're all sarcopenic. They all have very little muscle mass. They're all terribly underweight, and they suffer with health and longevity because of that. And while it is possible to add muscle and lose body fat at the same time, it's a little tricky to do that, and it takes a lot of planning and execution. Most people who increase protein and calories to add muscle also add some body fat, which they at some point in the future tend to switch their diet and training to reduce their body fat with the intent of preserving, preserving their brand new muscle mass. Balance and cycling of priorities. In modern society, where our diets are calorie-dense and nutrient-sparse, it is very easy to overeat in the sense of calories being too high. Right? Foods are designed these days to trigger cravings and to blunt your hunger responses so that you eat more and you keep coming back. And when you don't know that you're full and don't know that you've met your nutrient needs for that meal, you simply keep eating, creating a, a calorie and energy surplus that reduces AMPK and fires up mTOR in an imbalanced way, which means that you build tissues, including your fat cells, and you limit your ability 
to break things down, to use them, and to clear out metabolic junk and waste through autophagy. Even under the best of circumstances, there is a, a delay between when you have eaten enough food to satisfy your metabolic demands and when your brain sends that satiety signal, that satisfaction signal that tells you to stop eating, you're full. The Japanese have a saying, and I'm, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but the saying is harahichi bonmei, which means eat until you're 80% full. And this is an excellent diet strategy that helps to limit the potential damage of, say, a standard American diet, any diet really, because you can overconsume any, in, in, all food in any diet, but it gives your brain time to catch up to your belly and it prevents your taste buds and your cravings from dictating your food intake. And maybe this is one of the reasons why I mentioned in the last episode that the Japanese or Japan as a country will have more centenarians than almost every other country in the world in the coming decades. At a macro level, they behave in ways that promote balance and control over things like mTOR, AMPK, and sirtuins. All right, let me move on from that to one more macro element in longevity, and that is having a place and having a purpose. You've heard me in other podcasts talk about psychoneuroimmunology. That's the study of how your thoughts and your emotions affect your immune system specifically, but your, your metabolic state generally. We have many studies that confirm that people who are part of a community, having a place, people who have a fulfilling or fulfilling and supportive relationships, who socialize and don't isolate themselves, these people live longer and they're healthier in general, as do people who have a sense of purpose in life. And closely related to this is the impact of spirituality. Now, I'm a Bible-believing Bible Christian, but you don't have to be a Christian to benefit from feeling connected to what you believe is a higher power, meaning that the impact of spirituality is not exclusive to the domain of Christianity, but it's connected to your connectedness to whichever higher power you might believe in. But there's an important distinction in the research in this area. And by the way, I, I don't want to imply that what I'm going to tell you is absolutely definitive, only that there's enough data in several studies to draw some loose conclusions. But what we know is that it's not enough to simply have a belief in some kind of higher power. It seems that the people who benefit the most from their spirituality in terms of longevity and health span, are the ones who are engaged in some form of religious practice, like consistently attending church or being active in study groups or having an active prayer life. In fact, some studies suggest that people who routinely engage in this type of active spirituality live anywhere from six to nine years longer than those who don't believe in a higher power and therefore don't engage in such things. If you have somebody who has a belief in a higher power, but is not engaged in religious practice and not engaged with like-minded people, they're probably not going to get the same benefit. So again, believing in something bigger than yourself, being engaged in a like-minded community, having loving and supporting relationships and a sense of purpose to give you a hopeful expectation of your future appears to be health-promoting and life-extending. 
One last thing before I close here. Results from studies like these that I'm mentioning are generalizations among large groups of people that might characterize the group, but not necessarily individuals within that group. What I mean is that some atheists will outlive Christians and Jews and Muslims, and many faithful people of all creeds will die young for any myriad of reasons or have poor health, right? Just because you do or don't believe in a higher power doesn't ensure you against poor health or an early death or living a long life, being miserable and unwell. Remember what Ashley Montague said. I quoted him, I think, in my introduction. The goal is to die young as old as possible. It's about extending your life, but extending the quality of your life and your health during that period of time. Now, in the next episode, we're going to talk about another macro aspect of longevity, and that is exercise. More specifically, we are going to talk about the importance of muscle mass, strength, and cardiorespiratory fitness. All that and more next time on the Inflammation Nation podcast. Thanks for listening to Inflammation Nation. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. You can use the links in the episode description to check out Dr. Noseworthy's self-learning programs for thyroid, detox, and gut health. Or you can submit a question for the podcast and even reach out to Dr. Noseworthy directly.